Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back and welcome to our end of season 10 episode, our finale, before we come back with season 11. It's ridiculous to think that we're coming to the end of season 10, isn't it? But uh, we're only going to be away for a week, aren't we? We are. We're not going to do. We're not going to do a crazy one. So we'll be back in your ears before you know it. So let's uh, do our usual and take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. I'm going to do the honours this week. Oh, and go ahead. Yeah, we have Becky Salter, Louise Rich, and Machens, which I've probably not pronounced correctly. Uh, thank you to each and every one of you. Huge thanks to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you want to join these people, all you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and that'll fill the gap uh, in the week that we aren't around between season 10 and 11. Thank you so much, newest Patreon supporters. Mark, I am super excited for this week's episode. Like many of us true crime fans, I cut my teeth on mysteries. I spent too much time in my childhood worrying about spontaneous combustion I was petrified to discover that our honeymoon flight to Jamaica would go over the Bermuda Triangle and I still to this day get really scared of the idea of quicksand and Mm. drowning in quicksand. Just me? I hope not. No, for some people the whole quicksand thing is an actual fetish as well. It's a recognised fetish. Oh my God, what is wrong with you today? I'm really sorry. This is why we shouldn't record at night time. Yeah, this is where we've gone wrong. (laughs) Um, Naughty Mark comes out. But you you are right. Yeah, these uh, mysteries, absolutely. This is kind of what piqued my interest as a kid, I would say. Things Mm. like the Bermuda Triangle, reading books about that, for example. Yeah, this is just an extension, really, of of what we do now, isn't it? And I had loads of books that compiled mysterious deaths. I just absolutely loved to devour those stories. And this week, we're going to discuss one such tale. In the middle of an exceptionally harsh winter back in 1959, a group of experienced Russian hikers embarked on a daring expedition into the expansive, snow-covered wastelands of the Ural Mountains. The young adventurers set out, hoping to explore unknown territory, summit unconquered mountains, and bring pride to the USSR. However, what was intended to be an exciting and a daring foray into the great unknown soon turned into a harrowing nightmare. The violent fate that they met in the unforgiving wilderness created a darkly popular enigma that continues to baffle investigators, conspiracy theorists and true crime enthusiasts to this very day. After several decades and countless hours of detailed investigation, the Dyatlov Pass incident remains a mind-bending mystery, which, much to the dismay of the victims' families, stubbornly refuses to yield its secrets – I've got my theory, Mark. Do you have a theory? I've no, I I don't know anything about this, so Oh, intriguing. Okay. Interested to hear what plays out and what I think about it. I'm really excited to know which one that you're gonna which kind of theory you're gonna pick at the end then. Nine hikers, most of them young students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, met a mysterious and gruesome end on the slopes of Kolat Shikl, a notorious mountain with a name that translates to English somewhat ironically as the Dead Mountain. So the nine hikers' tent was found slashed from the inside and their bodies were discovered scattered in the freezing wilderness with inexplicable injuries and signs of extreme distress. The circumstances surrounding their deaths are a perplexing mystery, with theories ranging from avalanches to military cover-ups and even extraterrestrial encounters. 
I can kind of, when, when you said avalanches, I was kind of thinking, well, how would that explain the slashes on the inside of the tent? But I guess if it was covered in snow, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That you would be trying to get out. Especially if there's aliens, Mark. Well, of course, yeah. This week, we're going to be visiting Russia for a deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident, examining the evidence and exploring the enduring mysteries that shroud this tragic and unsettling tale. The Ural Mountains are a vast mountain range that stretches far and wide across the European and Asian parts of Russia. Spanning over 1,500 miles from north to south, the Ural Mountains are one of the longest, expansive and remotest mountain ranges in the world. The range starts from the Arctic Ocean in the north and extends to the Ural River in the south. These mountains have significant cultural, historical and economic importance for Russia. Historically, they served as a natural barrier, separating the European part of Russia from the vast Siberian wilderness. They are rich in mineral resources, including valuable ores such as iron, copper and gold, which have been extensively mined for centuries. The Ural Mountains also support diverse ecosystems, providing habitat for various plant and animal species. Due to their location and unique attributes, the Ural Mountains are not only a crucial natural feature of Russia, but also a popular destination for nature enthusiasts, hikers and researchers seeking to explore their rich geological and ecological diversity. However, despite their scientific and ecological value, a trip to the Urals is certainly no picnic. The weather conditions can be impossibly challenging, mainly due to their northerly location and their high elevation. Winters in the Urals are typically long and harsh with deathly cold temperatures, dangerously heavy snowfall and perpetually icy conditions. In some areas, temperatures can drop well below freezing and snow can accumulate to substantial depths. Summers are relatively short and provide little relief and temperatures can vary with some regions experiencing mild and pleasant conditions, whilst others may have warmer temperatures, but with the possibility of violent thunderstorms. Sound good, Mark? Wanna go? No. Sounds no. shit. Mm-hmm. In early 1959, a young and enthusiastic group of explorers was formed for a daring and dangerous expedition across the northern Urals. At that time, large swathes of the Ural Mountains were merely blank spots on the map, having never been explored by humans before. It is understood that the expedition was organised and put in motion by the region's local Komsomol organisation, a large Leninist political youth organisation that was extremely popular at the time, but is no longer in operation today. The Komsomol wanted to bring pride and prosperity to the USSR by being the first to successfully map out that area of the Urals and bring back important geographical information about the region. The primary aim of the expedition was to reach the peak of Otorten, a mountain in the northern Urals that had never been summited and was estimated to be a Category 3 climb, so one of the hardest types of mountains to traverse. It can't be understated just how enormous a feat this was. The climbers were required to navigate some of the most challenging terrains known to man at a time of year when temperatures consistently plummeted to an average of minus 15 degrees C, and the area was prone to freakishly powerful snowstorms. So this trip would demand peak physical fitness and mental durability. This is like the Duke of Edinburgh scheme on speed, isn't it? It literally is, yeah. After careful consideration, the head of the Komsomol appointed a young and eager 23-year-old radio engineering student named Igor Dyatlov to be the leader of the expedition. So, 
Igor Dyatlov was born on January the 13th, 1936, in the city of Yekaterinburg in the former Soviet Union. While specific details about his early life are limited, we do know that he was born into a middle-class family. He was the only son of his father, Yuri, who was a mathematics teacher, and his mother, Ludmia, who was a well-respected physician. Igor Dyatlov was said to be a bright and inquisitive student. He displayed an early interest in science and technology. He attended school in Sverdlovsk and later pursued higher education in the Ural Polytechnical Institute, where he studied radio engineering. He developed a passion for hiking and exploring the outdoors from a young age. And he was an active member of the Spartak Sports Club, which was known for its outdoor activities and expeditions. So it was here that he kind of earned this reputation for exceptional leadership qualities, exceptional organisational skills, and he was really admired for being able to lead really challenging hiking expeditions. So this was definitely the right choice for the leader of this. Really sounds it. He sounds experienced, uh, in you know, specifically in this sort of thing, but also a really clever guy as well. So if the group get into any trouble you would think that he would be able to kind of think on the spot and get them out of a situation if if that is possible not always possible but if they got lost for example he sounds like this sort of he's person he's going to keep a calm head yeah he yeah. would keep the group calm he would take the lead you know really actively in that situation and and sort it out and get him out of there that really reminded me of and I can't remember the name of the guy but there was a sketch where they were taking the mick out of the guy who used to be in EastEnders with is it Phil Mitchell? But I don't know what the actual actor's name is. And there was a sketch where he'd always be like, this started to kick off. So I got out of there. I don't know if anyone's going to get I've reference. never heard of this. I think it would just be me. Yeah. <laughs> Please, listeners, if anyone gets the reference, join me on this. So friends and acquaintances often described Igor Dyatlov as an adventurous and curious individual. He had a strong desire to explore new places and test his limits. And that was clearly what kind of encouraged him to want to organise and lead hiking expeditions that were super challenging. And it's more than likely what prompted him to accept the role as leader for this Komsmol's expedition in 1959. Upon accepting the challenge of leading the all-important expedition, Eagle was tasked with recruiting his own team to accompany him. So he handpicked the um, fellow climbers that he kind of knew personally, and they were chosen as well based on their skills, their experience, their mental toughness and their reliability. So the team was Zineda Kolmogorova. She was a 22-year-old radio engineering student who was rumoured to be dating Igor at the time, although that was never verified. And Zineda was actually one of the very few female members of the group. She was an avid sportswoman, skilled in skiing and other outdoor activities. She had an adventurous spirit and her mental resilience made her a valued member of the team. She was an obvious choice for Igor. And then there was Rustem Slobodin and he was a 23-year-old civil engineering student with a keen interest in photography. He was really known for his calm and collected demeanour so he could contribute to the group's overall stability and his passion for documenting their expeditions through photography added that creative dimension to the adventure. 20-year-old Ludmia Dubinia, the youngest member of the group, was studying engineering and economics and was described as sociable and outgoing. She brought a positive energy to the group. She had a real love for the outdoors and her strong sense of camaraderie made her an integral part of the team. 
Yuri Doroshenko was a 21-year-old engineering and economics student known for his physical strength and endurance and his athleticism had made him an asset during their challenging hikes in the past. His determination matched that of Igor's and, uh, you know, according to rumour, but we don't know for definite if Igor um, was in a relationship with Zineda, but he had previously been in a relationship with Zineda. 23-year-old Yuri Krivonenshkenko was studying construction and hydraulics. Um, he was known for his warm and friendly personality, which really endeared him to the group, but his technical knowledge also added a real practical dimension to their expeditions. Yuri Yudin was a 21-year-old radio engineering student and a skilled climber who was recognised for his resilience and determination and said to be a gifted athlete. He apparently had remarkable levels of fitness, but suffered with chronic rheumatism, so a disease which causes stiffness and pain in one's joints, but still wanted to go on this. And Alexander Kolevatov was 24 years old and a nuclear physics science uh, scientist student who brought that scientific perspective to the group. Known for his inquisitive mind, he added an intellectual dimension to their expeditions. There was also Nikolai Thibault-Brigonel, so age 23, he was a radio engineering student of French origin, bringing a multicultural aspect to the group. And he had a passion for the outdoors. He had a really diverse background. And so he was a really interesting, very well-liked member of the team. So the final member of the team was Semyon Zolotaryov. And he was the oldest member of the group at 38 years old. He was kind of an odd one out because he wasn't a student at the university. He had no affiliation with the Komsomol. But he was a skilled outdoorsman, a seasoned hiker, and he was kind of like a father figure within the group from his age and experience. He kind of provided guidance and expertise in the challenging situations. So apart from Semyon, there's like this group of, you can tell they're really good friends. They're a real like group um, that he's kind of got together. And then also he, this is this kind of father figure of the whole set. Yeah, the, this is like the elite of the elite, isn't it? It really is. That's what he wanted. He wanted to really make this a success. Yeah, I mean, this this has got all the ingredients for them to achieve the ambition that they're setting out to achieve. And obviously it goes horribly wrong. Sadly, yeah. So with the team put together, Igor Dyatlov got to work on planning the route that they would take to reach Otorton. After a day or two of careful planning and conferring with his teammates, it was decided that they would aim to reach the far northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River, and then continue along the banks through several narrow mountain passes before finally climbing and summiting Otorten after around 16 or 18 days of hiking, and that would all depend on the conditions that they were facing. With the planning phase complete, the expedition was ready to depart and everyone was itching to get going. Before the group departed, Igor Dyatlov met with the heads of the Komsomol and told them that he and his team would send a telegram as soon as they returned to civilization and notify them of the overall success of the mission. It's interesting because you said, uh, you know, they're kind of really keen to get going and I can really feel that apprehension, but that anxiety and excitement, all those mixed emotions must have been at play in the days running up to the expedition. And it would have been definitely excitement because they're confident that they're going to pull this off, but they must have had at the back of their minds also 
a real level of concern. Will we make it? The conditions can be really severe and harsh. And there's a lot riding on this. And yeah, I just, I don't know, I could just imagine the level of anxiety as well as excitement at play. No, I agree with you. So you can kind of almost feel the the anticipation. You can almost imagine like they're all sat around, they've got their bags packed, they got, they've checked their food supplies. Let's get going now. No, we're doing it tomorrow. Like you wouldn't be able to sleep the night before. So exciting. This, these 10 people just with this shared goal. So early the following morning, on January the 23rd, 1959, the Diet Love Hiking Group, comprised of 10 strong, healthy and experienced hikers, departed and they were ready for this daring trek. Two days later, the group arrived by train in the remote city of Ivdal. So this was the last inhabited settlement before their trek into the wilderness. And can you imagine that train journey? Like we said, that buzz of them all just ready to get going. And as they're approaching, they know this is the last kind of stand of humanity before they just go into the wilderness i can really feel that because i i I can imagine them looking out the window on that train and the landscape just becoming more and more remote and sparse as they kind of head towards ivdale which is their final stop before embarking on the expedition so yeah it would have it would have just had that real sense of foreboding of this is really happening now and we are heading to the point, the edge of, you know, uh, humanity and civilization, and embarking onto this path that hasn't really been trodden much before. So yeah, it would have mm. really felt weird, I'm sure. And they're not, you know, they're really sensible. They spent two days then in the city, going back over their maps, making sure they knew the route and their objectives, making sure they were well rested, they'd eaten well, they were really taking this as like a very serious expedition it it was a mission and I think that word gets used a lot and it it does it's the right word and then they kind of on the 27th of January head to this small village called Vizai which is right on the edge of the Urals and that's the last stop and it's this little village where they kind of that's the last chance that they've got before they go but Yuri Yudin so I said before he had rheumatism he had been really struggling. He was in constant pain. He wasn't getting any better. And Igor had some serious concerns for his suitability on the expedition. And basically, they they made the decision there. We've got, you know, you're not getting any better. You've had four days to try and get better and you're not. You're clearly in the middle of this flare-up. So he actually headed back um, and the nine of them then went on without him. Which sounds like a wise decision it sounds harsh and it it's, must have been devastating for him but mm. equally it it would have pulled the group back and slowed them down and yeah i can just imagine them being preoccupied with his fitness levels during yeah. the expedition and it's just they need to be 100 percent focused so actually i bet he was kind of like yeah you know for the greater the good right i decision. need to i need to opt out yeah i think so and obviously, there's no doubt, this decision saved Yuri Yudin's life. So the remaining eight members and Igor, you know, leading the team, they cracked on, they continued their trek. A dejected and disappointed Yuri Yudin wished his comrades good speed and waved them off. And he watched them disappear over the first of many snow-capped peaks. And this would be the very last communication that anyone would ever have with Igor Dyatlov or any other member of his team. Yuri Yudin had no idea that he was watching nine of his friends march directly towards their own violent deaths, and none of them would ever be seen alive again. 
Right from the off, the challenging weather conditions and the blisteringly cold temperatures presented the group with numerous problems. The snow was really deep, so they could only walk across it with long skis on their boots. The strong and snowy winds made visibility a huge challenge, and the group continuously found themselves unintentionally wandering off course. Progress was slow, and the going was tough, but the group managed to power their way through as they followed followed their pre-designated route along the Losva River towards the summit of Otorton. By day, they marched relentlessly on towards the goal, and at night they erected tents and huddled down to sleep, braving the bitterly cold temperatures and gale-false winds that battered their campsites. In the early stages of the trek, despite the challenges that they were facing, spirits were high, and there was a real sense of camaraderie and positivity amongst the group. They took photos of each other, laughing and joking and larking around, clearly enjoying the experience, and they would write diary entries, so some of them had said things like, I wonder what awaits us on this trip and what will we encounter? However, conditions only continue to worsen. The mounting problems were only followed by bigger and more dangerous problems. As they pushed through the hostile climate towards the base of the mountain, they were hit with snowstorms that ripped through the narrow pass. Decreasing visibility caused the team to lose their sense of direction, and instead of moving towards Otorton, they accidentally deviated west and found themselves on the slope of a nearby mountain called Kolatz Sayakal, which ironically means dead mountain that we were talking about earlier. That's in the language of the indigenous Mansi people of the region. The group arrived on the slopes of Kolat Sakhal late in the day on February the 2nd, and despite this unintended detour, Dyatlov actually wrote in his journal that he was pleased with the group's progress, he felt optimistic that they would succeed. To avoid losing the altitude that they had gained, or perhaps avoid the risk of deviating further off course in the dark, Dyatlov instructed his group to set up camp and get some rest for the night. This would be the group's very last campsite. As the sun set and the Ural Mountains were plunged into darkness, the exhausted climbers bedded down and fell effortlessly to sleep, still happy, still enthusiastic, still living life to the fullest. None of them could have known that they would not survive the night to come. So, getting back to the story before leaving, Igor had obviously said that he would send a telegram to the Komsmol as soon as the group returned to Vizai, and it was expected that that would be no later than the 12th of February. That was kind of what they'd said would be, you know, fair with what they were planning. But Yuri Yudin said that actually Igor had told him just before they parted ways that he expected it to be a little bit longer due to the harsh weather conditions. So the 12th of February came and went and there was no word from Dietlov or his team. And initially, nobody was overly worried about the group's lack of communication. It's not like today, They had to wait for them to get back to be able to send this telegram. Large expeditions like this one were often highly complicated. Delays with periods of silence were common. It was kind of to be expected. But when a further three days passed with no telegram, as promised, people did begin to get uncomfortable. The heads of the Komsomol, not to mention the families and friends of the group members, waited anxiously for several more days. But nobody heard anything from anybody from the expedition team. By the 20th of February, the team's desperately worried relatives demanded a rescue operation. And the heads of the Komsomol sent a rescue party. This consisted mainly of volunteer students and teachers out to the Urals on foot to begin searching for their missing comrades. 
Later, members of the Russian army joined the search, with planes and helicopters swiftly deployed to assist the search and rescue operation. However, from the sky, the search was fruitless. The horrendous weather conditions actually caused aerial visibility to drop to near zero, and the helicopters and aircraft were unable to fly low enough to stand a chance of spotting anything through the snowstorm. It's such a shame, isn't it? Because if the weather conditions were not as horrific as that and it was sort of clear flying conditions they would have stood out like a sore thumb against the backdrop of pure white virgin snow any sort of color or darkness would have stood out really obviously and i know it's a massive um area for them to have been searching but equally they would have i guess shared the route that they would have been taking so it would have been pretty easy to follow that from the air but yeah if you've got blizzard conditions or whatever it might have been you're not going to see you know even like six inches in front of you let alone hundreds or thousands of feet below yeah and when you think about everest for example where we hear of climbers or so many people dying there and even to recover their bodies is or is can can be a really dangerous mission in its own rarely happens yeah yeah so it's this is why i don't go hiking on mountains no don't do it The best hope of finding the team rested solely on the volunteer rescue force that had begun their slow but steady trek through. They were kind of following that same route that they believed the team had walked days before. And obviously this is the thing, they'd made all their plans, they'd made their preparations so they could kind of follow this trek that they thought that they would be kind of following the right track. And it's understood that over the course of this long and arduous hike across the Urals, the members of the rescue team were not very hopeful for this positive outcome. Because although Dyatlov's group was made up of experienced hikers, the route that they had chosen was remarkably difficult. Accidents on these tricky mountain trails were a real danger. And with the hikers having been missing for so long, the rescue team expected to find an open and shut case of a horrific accident on treacherous ground. But then, on the 26th of February, one member of the rescue team spotted what looked like a badly damaged tent poking up through the snow as they passed by the foot of Colat Saikal. So feeling a surge of enthusiasm, but coupled with a sense of dread, the team went to investigate. And what they discovered there is what makes the Dyatlov Pass incident by far the greatest yet darkest mystery in mountaineering history. When investigators arrived at what remained of the campsite, they found that it was completely abandoned. The group's tent had been badly damaged, and on closer inspection, they noticed that the tent had actually been cut open with a sharp knife from the inside. The cut looked as if it had been done in a hurry. Meanwhile, as other members of the rescue team sifted through the snow looking for clues, they found that most of the team's belongings, including several pairs of hiking shoes and numerous items of clothing, had been left there at camp. This was a deeply troubling development. The group had abandoned their tent in a hurry, apparently without their shoes on, and had left the relative safety of the campsite without adequate clothing. However, things were about to get weirder. A few yards away from the campsite, a member of the rescue team discovered what appeared to be eight or nine sets of footprints. Judging by the impressions that the prints had had made in the deep snow, most of them had been clearly made by people with nothing on their feet, and these tracks led to the edge of the nearby woods almost a mile away from the camp. I can't even imagine taking three steps in the snow. No, really deep snow, and 
Yeah, so I mean they'd sort of gone to they bedded down for the night, hadn't they, in their tent. So mm-hmm. you know, that's back in the late fifties, that's not gonna be a brilliant tent that keeps the warmth in and is really well insulated. So they must have been freezing, but this just smacks to me of them getting the hell out of there really, really quickly. So See, I don't think that the tent would have necessarily been freezing. I think it would have been still they would have had like the best of the best equipment, I feel like these guys. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they would have been, but like think, they'd have all been huddled up as well. Yeah, so they would whatever have. The, whatever the reason is that you're leaving that, you're leaving what is as warm as you're possibly going to have, I should imagine. Without shoes on. So mm. yeah, you've not had any time to get dressed in any way. And yeah, most of the clothes were left there too. At the forest's edge, under a large cedar tree, the investigators found the remains of a small fire and next to it they made their first grisly discovery. The dead bodies of Yuri Krivonashenko and Yuri Doreshenko were discovered face down in the snow, despite the temperatures of minus 13 to minus 22 degrees on the night of their deaths. The rescuers were horrified and perplexed to find that both men's bodies were shoeless and naked apart from underwear. So Droshenko's complexion was a peculiar brown-purple colour, which is not typical of hypothermia, and he had a strange grey foamy liquid substance leaking from his mouth. To this day, nobody knows what the substance was or why he had it in his mouth. And furthermore, the hands of the two Yuris had multiple cuts and abrasions, and the branches above them were torn down as if the two men had tried desperately to seek shelter from something or someone by trying to climb the tree. That is a horrible thought that, yeah, because at first I'm thinking of they rip branches down to kind of make a, like a makeshift camp and shelter or to burn it. But yeah, it does sound like they were desperately trying to claw their way up a tree to escape something or someone. And the mystery got even weirder when footprints were discovered that appeared to be leading away from the cedar tree and back in the general direction of the campsite. They followed the prince and the rescuers then found three more bodies. They found Igor, Zineda and Rustem. They were fully clothed but appeared to have died whilst attempting to get back to the tent. And it would later transpire that the clothes that um, Igor Dyatlov and Rustem Slobodin were wearing when they died, they didn't actually belong to them. They were clothes belonging to the two Yuris who had died at the foot of the cedar tree. So that kind of seemed to indicate that Yuri Krivoshenko and Yuri Doreshenko had died first and then Igor and Rustem had kind of used their clothes to try and survive, mm. potentially. Yeah. And the already troubling mystery took further dark turns when the rescuers found that actually Slobodin had massive head injuries. So Rustem Slobodin had injuries consistent with someone falling and hitting their head repeatedly and with tremendous force. And also Zineda, she had been injured before she died, had a really weird baton-shaped bruise on her chest area. So like a almost like blunt force trauma, but like across there. Do you know what this is making me, and I mean, I'm sure we'll kind of come on to some of the conspiracy theories or just theories around what happened because something went down and something happened here. And part of me was, you know, as you've been telling the story is thinking, was it some kind of weird animal or something? But do you know what I think it is? I think a member of this group had just flipped and gone mad and 
was attacking their fellow campmates and mm. people having to run from them. Yeah, that's a really interesting theory. It's not my theory, okay, but I do like it as a theory. Because you can understand going mental in this I think scenario. That's it. Yeah, because you've just got this expanse of snow and it's so easy to um, get disorientated physically as you're sort of going along on this expedition. But I think mentally it must just, yeah, I know you talked about a lot of them had that resilience, but I think it can do really strange things to people when you're out at sea or when you're out in the expanse of never-ending snow. I think it can, yeah, it can really cause people to have a real breakdown and that then manifests potentially in this scenario as attacking, yeah, anyone that's around. Mm, My only kind of thing to come back to you with on that is these are experienced hikers who have done really challenging things before yeah so you'd be surprised if any of them could behave like this and also which one of them would have been the one to blame i think we'll go yeah. into it in a yeah. bit more detail we'll look at more of the information because then um that may solidify your theory it may change things but it'd be interesting to know, well, who then? Who, which one of them is the one to blame? Mm. All five of the dead bodies that had been discovered so far had been generally underdressed. They had been wearing some of each other's clothes, which kind of further supported the theory that they'd fled suddenly in a state of panic. No adequate preparation as well. They're going into the freezing night. Despite being experienced, they've gone out with no shoes, for example, which you'd think is the first thing you'd think of is proper boots. Or in just their underwear. The two Yuri's. Yeah, but then it's not known if they took off, you know, if the others took off Yuri and Yuri's clothes to wear. Yeah, true. Potentially Yuri and Yuri were wearing their clothes and they were taken off them. But maybe in the panic of getting out, they'd grabbed the wrong person's clothes. Who knows? Yeah. Detectives arrived on the scene after several days of trying and failing to land a helicopter at the campsite in the appalling weather conditions. They had five dead bodies and a perplexing set of circumstances, and there were still four hikers unaccounted for. A wider search of the area was launched, but progress was really, really hampered by the harsh winter conditions, and the efforts to locate the rest of the team literally took weeks, because it was two months later... When investigators searched deeper in the woods near to where Yuri and Yuri had been found, that they found the remaining four bodies. So the remaining hikers were discovered buried deep under the snow in a ravine 75 metres deeper into the woods than the cedar tree, which had since become known as the Dyatlov Pass Den. The four corpses were soon confirmed to belong to Nikolai, Ludmia, Semyon and Alexander, so the four final remaining members of the group. The discovery not only destroyed any hope that the rescuers had of finding any survivors, but it brought forth even more gruesome stories than those of the other members of the group. And the mystery took a sudden, dark and really sinister turn. So Nikolai had suffered catastrophic skull damage in the moments before his death. Ludmia and Semyon had suffered major chest traumas that could only have been caused by an immense force comparable to that of a high-speed car crash. And even more gruesome was the fact that Dubinia was missing her tongue, her eyes and parts of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a large fragment of her skull bone. Could that have just been in the two months where, where her body had lay there, animals and wildlife had pecked away at that 
a tongan potentially, arrive? but it was the fact that it was just her specifically. Um, and the bodies are buried under un- you know, under snow. So yeah, yeah. The weird thing though, as well, was that the body of Alexander Kolevatov was found in the same location as the others, but he had suffered no severe injuries whatsoever. He had apparently died of hypothermia. So he's the murderer. (laughs) In your theory. Yeah. So the second group of bodies suggested that the hikers had died at distinctly different times because they appeared to have actually been making use of the clothes of the people who had died before them. So um, Zidana was wearing some some of the clothes of like the one of the Yuri's trousers around her feet and Semyon was wearing the fake, fake fur coat and hat that actually Dabinia had been wearing mm. um so it kind of sounded like he'd taken that from her after she died yeah it does sound like that um and then the weirdest part of it as well was that the clothes that two of them were wearing showed evidence of being radioactive so there's just all these weird things just mm. coming up, piece of information after piece of information coming up that they were really, really strange. So all the bodies were successfully recovered, flown back to civilization, and post-mortems ruled that they had all died because of compelling, unknown, natural force. So that verdict kind of offered nothing in terms of comfort for the devastated families, and people really began demanding this to be a full and thorough investigation rather than just well something happened and they died and that was kind of it and i think not just for the family the families and the loved ones of these nine hikers that have died i think if i'm guessing this would have got out in the media and would have been reported on at the time and i just sort of think the general public would have just been scratching their heads thinking what on earth happened out there we need to know as much as anybody else because it's just otherwise gonna go on to be one of those great mysteries which it has gone on to be but yeah i bet there was pressure to really have an inquiry as to or a proper investigation as to what actually happened to them but the soviet government was far less keen to discover the facts opted instead to close the case quickly and gave only vague causes of death speculating that the hikers own incompetence had been the sole cause of their demise or perhaps a natural disaster was the culprit. Quite a quite a governmental kind of thing to just come out and say. Almost from the off, foul play was the number one theory. So similar to what you said, but a lot of people thought foul play from an external source. As the hikers had been killed in the middle of the northern Urals, many hundreds of miles away from civilization, Soviets began to suspect that the hikers' deaths were a result of an ambush by the local Mansai tribesmen. So they were indigenous people living in the high mountains of the Urals and the Tyumen Oblast in Russia. And of course, a sudden and unexpected attack by outside hostels would explain why the unarmed and vulnerable hikers fled their tents, naked and terrified and disorientated, out into the sub-freezing conditions. But that explanation kind of fizzled out quite quickly because the Mansai people weren't largely peaceful. The evidence in the past didn't really support violent human conflict. I think it's an easy one because these indigenous people were perhaps, particularly back then, not not very well understood or known maybe so it's just so easy to blame them isn't it and say well this is a case of they're seeing people come onto their territory and they're protecting their territory and their belongings and their community 
so they've acted mm-hmm. out but yeah it's just it's it's easy to say that but generally people are good and yeah i think it's unfair to have blamed them and i'm not surprised that they were known to be peaceful because most people are and yeah, yeah I, I personally from the little i know that you've said about them I, I don't think it would have been them no and this is a small group of hikers they're not causing anyone any harm they're not interrupting anybody's livelihoods or doing anything that's going to interrupt somebody and actually even if they did they probably would have just been quite nice about it as well these are nice people who went to do this expedition they'd have probably just been like really sorry we'll get out of your way they stopped somewhere that was actually really remote and they were the only ones there at that point and of course as well you probably have it in their records wouldn't you we came across this these people they were really angry with us we've decided to go a different yeah. route because of this or or something there's no mention of that unless it happened really quickly but i just don't see what these nine individuals would have had to offer because they would yeah, have had food and I stuff agree. like that but the indigenous people are experts at living out in that wild yeah they don't need that snow covered terrain yeah they don't need any of that they know how to live out there more than anyone so yeah i just don't i think that's an easy explanation that a lot of people i'm sure jumped to at the time and maybe still hold but i just don't buy that that it was them and there's some other good reasons why it isn't the case so one of the reasons is that the damage done to the hikers bodies was so catastrophic it exceeded the blunt force trauma that one human could inflict on another So that kind of then takes away a little bit of your theory as well. It does. And there was also no evidence of any footprints on the mountain beyond those made by the hikers themselves. Given the depth of the snow on the mountain, it would have been impossible for anyone to attack the campers without leaving at least some trace or impression in the snow. So that then takes away from the indigenous people, not necessarily from your theory, but it kind of proves that there was nobody else there. So what the fuck happened, Bethan? That's the point of this episode. Welcome to Seeing Red. This is why it has confused people and still intrigues people to this day. Mm. Investigators then conceived of a swift and violent avalanche, saying that the ominous rumbling sound of snow collapsing and barreling towards them from above would have frightened the hikers out of their tents in a state of undress, sent them sprinting for the tree line, and obviously an avalanche is adequately powerful to inflict the extreme injuries that had killed some of them. But as much as everyone wanted to believe that was the case, there was no evidence of an avalanche. You know, the trees hadn't been knocked down. Anyone who knew the area said that that wouldn't have made sense there. There was there was no debris of an avalanche, so... Yeah, I think you would that. know that because you would the snow would have fallen in particular ways and it would have had a certain pattern. They would have absolutely known if there'd been an avalanche. Yeah, and there's been no avalanches recorded there before, none since, and they would have really sort of staked out where they were going to stay, so they would have known if that was Avalanche City and it clearly wasn't, so it was not the case. But... That hypothesis actually remained as the official cause of death as far as the Soviet government was concerned, probably because it was kind of quite a plausible situation and plausible solution, and it gives them like a quick answer. But it didn't really account for all the aspects of this case. So why had two of the dead hikers' clothing become radioactive? Why had three others been trying to go back to the campsite that should, in theory, have been buried completely by the snow? 
This theory also didn't explain why some of the dead had suffered horrendous, horrendous injuries, but some had not. And also why Ludmia had her tongue and parts of her face ripped off, but no one else. The Soviet government, of course, soon lost interest in the case, refused to engage further, and they just left the dead hikers' family and friends with way more questions than answers. With official theories leaving so much of the case unexplained, many alternative explanations for the incident have been put forward in the six decades that have followed. And while many of these are highly elaborate, some are decidedly concrete and straightforward. Other investigators began to test the theory that the deaths were the result of some argument amongst the group that got out of hand. So this is coming into your theory, Mark. So maybe Mm. there was like a romantic encounter. Maybe it wasn't necessarily going mad from exposure to just nothingness but there was kind of the history of dating between different members of the team and we all know what young people are like and this is a group of friends so there may well have been that sort of element to it was it possible that there was like a love triangle yeah because i was thinking that because i can't remember her name or pronounce it but the woman on the expedition had dated to well potentially we don't know for definite but Igor and I think it Ludmia. was she'd dated yeah. Igor and and one other potentially so yeah they could have been vying for her affections or perhaps one of them or one of the other group tried it on with her and maybe one oh, of no, them it was had... Zenaida Zenaida oh, apparently ah, so the was dating yeah. Igor okay. but she had um she'd also maybe dated one of the others as well yeah. and then there was also Ludmia as well but. Yeah, could have been something like that. Yeah, and also somebody, one of them could have smuggled alcohol with them and they were all having a drink or maybe that was part of the agreement. You know, they were all open about it and they took alcohol with them, which I don't think they would have done because they were really serious about the expedition. But yeah, maybe they just got drinking one night and things got out of hand. That's it. And maybe this, the tensions from this love triangle simmered over into boiling point. One member lost control went into a homicidal rage, you know, they're all inside this tent, so you would maybe have to cut your way out of the tent and flee because this person's gone mad rather than getting to the zips. But those horrific injuries, they could not have been inflicted by a person. So that's that's still how. How would that person, yeah. whoever it was who'd gone into a rage... So, you know, was it Alexander at the very end? He's done all of this and then realises what's gone on. He sits there in the midst of everything and he dies of exposure and hypothermia. Was that the case? But how? Yeah. How, how would you... How, how? how was he inflicted those injuries when yeah. they could have only been done by... Well, I, I don't know. Like you say, not not really possible for a human being to inflict injuries like that on another human being. Mm. It would have to be machinery or... I don't know, like a terrible accident falling from a great height or something. So obviously there's um, the injuries to Dubinia's face. And like we said, there's, you know, maybe it was small scavengers, maybe because she was kind of partially submerged in water under the snow rather than the others were maybe packed more into snow, which preserved them or something like that. Um, but some people think that maybe there was like a more sinister predator. Was there something that was picking off these people? And then there's the radioactivity. So it was detected on some of the bodies. And this led to some theories that the hikers had been killed by a sort of radioactive secret weapon after stumbling into secret government testing. 
Now, I don't think this is that far far-fetched, no. really. If you think, where are you going to test your weapons? Somewhere completely uninhabited would make perfect sense. Yeah, you've got, you know, you've got people doing wild swimming, cold water swimming off the coast of northern Scotland. And little do they know, a few hundred metres in front is uh, one of our nuclear submarines just going around this island that we all live submarining. on submarining <laughs> um but do you know what i mean like it's there's a lot that goes it on that happen. we absolutely don't know about a hundred yeah 100 percent. so it seemed a bit far-fetched at first but it gained a lot of credibility when it was revealed that some strange sightings had been reported by another hiking group camping just 50 kilometers from the diet loft pass team on the same night that the team died so the other group spoke of strange orange orbs floating around in the sky some allegedly believed that the orange glow was coming from distant explosions. So the hypothesis goes that the sound of the weapon drove the hikers from their tents in a panic. Half-clothed, the first group died of hypothermia whilst attempting to take shelter from the blasts. And then the second group, having seen the first group freeze, tried to go back for their belongings. They fell victim to hypothermia too. And then a third group kind of got caught in a fresh blast further into the forest and then died from their injuries. And if it's some top secret weapon, you don't know how powerful it could be. It could well have caused those blunt force trauma injuries. Yeah, I um, also, well, yeah, you're right. It could, it could do untold damage that you can't even begin to imagine. I remember um, an old family friend, her husband, he worked, I can't remember where, he was in the army, and I can't remember when it was either. This isn't, you know, a very detailed story. But the point is, um, when they were testing some of the nuclear weapons and he was sort of involved in that, he said they would put, they would hold their hands up to their face to um, shield their eyes. And he said when these weapons were detonated or whatever you call it, he said, I would literally be able to see the bones in my hand because of the radiation. So oh, it was like an x-ray. Horrible. He would hold them up and he would see all the bones and everything in his actual hands. So. Yeah, there's some weird and horrible weaponry out there that could have done something that just made them think, Jesus Christ, what the fuck was that? And they, yeah, dart from that tent and the sky could have been lit up all different colours for all we know out there. And, you know, you're not going to, it's terrifying. It would be, it could be really, really noisy. Yes, the other group didn't hear any noises, but you don't know what these people had heard. Who knows if they, you know, potentially these weapons were being tested on the group. Could, could be specifically yeah i mean my point i suppose was and what it made me think is i could almost just see yeah that maybe these weapons being tested and somebody looks over at someone else in the tent and sees their entire skeleton for a split second whilst the radiation Jeez, is just yeah. so intense and thinks what the fuck just happened can you imagine seeing something like that you can't even mm -hmm. i think begin to imagine that it's such an alien no. weird thing so like a cartoon when they yeah. get electrocuted and it goes like black and white or fuzzy and you yeah. see their skeleton so I, I, I yeah. wonder if it was just something so crazy that, yeah, just drove them running from that tent, screaming for their lives, thinking what, what has just gone down. The chief investigator said at the time, I suspected at the time, and I am almost sure now that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's death when he was interviewed by a small newspaper in 1990. But censorship and secrecy in the USSR forced him to abandon his line of inquiry. 
Some have tried to explain the hiker's strange behaviour and lack of clothing with an in-depth look at the effects of hypothermia. So irrational thinking and irrational behaviour is a common early sign of hypothermia. And as a victim approaches death, they may paradoxically perceive themselves to be overheating. So that causes them to remove their clothes. And that phenomenon is so common, it actually has its own term, which is paradoxical undressing. I think I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, and this is ex- this is the theory that I've always kind of believed in. I mean, for a long time, at the when I first heard about this, I thought there was like a monster or a demon, but I was a dramatic teenager. Personally, this is kind of my theory that I go with. A lot of people have said that neither hypothermia nor paradoxical undressing explain why the hikers left their warm tent in a panic for the world outside in the first place, which I do agree, but perhaps there was an issue with their tents or their clothing maybe it was something like that the other issue is that it doesn't explain the how severe the injuries were but I kind of feel like potentially did they try and hide under a tree and then a tree like sprung back and whacked them I don't really know and I've got no real answer oh, this is very I'm contrived not an but this is ve- <laughs> hypothermia does mad things to it people does. so that's my theory does it make a tree ping back on several people and cut their tongue off I'm not so sure mm, have you ever been hit by a tree I have actually it was quite bad <laughs> yeah I did nearly lose an eye so well there you go <laughs> so other explanations include drug testing that caused violent behavior in the hikers an unusual weather event known as an infrasound which is caused by particular wind patterns that can lead to panic attacks in humans because the low frequency sound creates kind of an earthquake inside your body oh my god there's, I've never there's heard. lots That's and horrible. lots of theories isn't That's that awful so fucked up that 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 could actually happen I've never heard of that. That's horrible. But in the end, the hikers' deaths were officially attributed to a compelling natural force and the case was closed. The aftermath of the Dyatlov Pass incident was marked by a perplexing void of answers leading to enduring speculation and numerous conspiracy theories. The official Soviet investigation, despite concluding that an unknown compelling force caused the tragic deaths, led many questions left many questions unanswered and the case was subsequently closed the files were classified so over the years theories have emerged so you know avalanches military involvement extraterrestrial encounters which i haven't gone into but obviously lights and very powerful beings there's going to be theories that kind of come about with that Mm. it's such a difficult one isn't it because I mean, I think human nature is that we just, well, it's twofold because sometimes it means we want to go to the extreme and and rage about conspiracy theories. But also sometimes we just want to try and find the most simple answer. And I'm trying to do that. And I can't, there is just no simple answer that makes this jigsaw puzzle fit together. No, every kind of theory has its pros and cons. Absolutely, yeah. The questions it leaves unanswered, you can't leave unanswered. No. And my theory of hypothermia, I, I do still I do still believe that, but what caused the injuries? That's that's such a key question. Unless the hypothermia had caused some of the group to turn on each other. I mean you, you could have that whole Lord of the Flies mentality a few days but in, lots of pressure. You wouldn't get super strength, would you? No, that's true. Yeah, I can't I can't uh, understand. Yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah. 
I just I think any explanation is as likely as the next one because mm-hmm. I think the whole uh, government testing weapons that as random as that sounds could absolutely it could be on the money yeah. something like that and that could be why the government at the time were quick to just close the case yeah and this is such a remote landscape a perfect place to test crazy weapons and if you think of russia back in the late 50s we were heading well probably in the cold war or heading towards that yeah they would have had some pretty damn crazy capable weaponry that could do crazy things so yeah for me that weirdly is the one that i i mostly go to because i can't nothing else really explains the unexplainable i think you're right there i think i've changed my tune a little bit because you're right we would have they would have been in the middle of you know the beginning time of the cold war Mm. and testing it's just it's still I think it's because we don't want to think that our governments would do that. But of course, we know throughout history, governments have tested on their people secretly a lot of times. And we can't trust that, that they don't. But it still doesn't quite sit right with you, does it, that they would? But potentially. Well, they might not have been testing. They might have just been testing the weaponry in what they think is a remote isolated location there's indigenous people that live there but we don't give a shit about them so let's test all the weaponry and then yeah little did they know that these nine hikers were out there and Mm -hmm. impacted by whatever they were testing and were going to be found because if it's just the indigenous people that suffer as a consequence of those tests no one's going to know about it and yeah and the government will not care as much yeah absolutely that's the way it would would have been so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just the radioactivity is weird, and and also for only two of them to be radioactive yeah. feels more specific. Like they've walked through a beam of some sort. Yeah, or that's it. And an area of some sort. Nuclear weapons and energy can do really strange, weird things that aren't really explainable in the real normal world, the day-to-day world in which we live. So that could have explained those catastrophic injuries to those individuals or some of them, or even why, you know, one of, like that woman, her her tongue's missing and her eye's missing. Yeah, that, I'm I'm kind of set on that, but equally that's as likely or as unlikely as everything else. There we go. There we go, Mark. Mind-bending. Um, this is why it's one of those kind of enduring unsolved mysteries that people are still talking about today. And we wanted to end season 10 with this so that you've got a couple of weeks mm-hmm. to think about it uh, before we, we come back with season we 11. We want to hear your theories. We wanna, I don't want to hear how badly I've pronounced Russian names, please, because I'm sure I have, even though I've tried really hard to do all my research and phonetically spell everything out for myself. I'm sure I've said stuff wrong. Um, you can tell me, of course, listeners. But um, please do share your theories. What do you think happened? Do you agree with me? Do you agree with Mark? Have you got a different theory that I haven't covered? Because there are a lot of theories. I mean, this could have been three hours long if I was going to mention every single one. Get in touch in all the usual ways on Instagram, Facebook. You can join our Facebook discussion group. I think we've got 2,600 people there. Um, It's a really active group and we we talk about these, uh, the episodes and the cases that we've covered and and discuss those so yeah head over there or instagram um or if you're a patreon supporter uh discuss it underneath the posting of this episode too we will see you week after next with the opener for season 11 and i'm just before we go i'm working on it and it's 
utterly gruesome. That is oh, all I dear. can say. I'm really sorry, but it's I will issue a warning uh, when that episode comes out. But it is it's probably going to be the worst episode we've ever done in nearly 300 episodes. It involves animals, unfortunately, and bestiality on an industrial scale, and it sees us head to Australia. So, yeah, we will see you for that in a couple of weeks' time. See you then. 